I'm going to go ahead and continue on in our sermon series, Letters to the Church, and we're in the book of Ephesians. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter number two, uh, you can be getting prepared. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, it was a book written by the Apostle Paul a few years after Jesus ascended to heaven. And after Jesus went to heaven, his followers went over the entire then known world telling others about Christ, and all these churches began to form, and they needed leadership, and the Apostle Paul was one of the leaders of the church, and he would write letters to different churches for them to read those letters, instructing them in, in the way of Christ, and then they were to send those letters off to different churches in the surrounding areas. Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire. Think of a, a modern-day Los Angeles or New York City, something like that. It was a vibrant city, and Paul's writing to this church and giving them instructions. Now, what's really interesting is is as I said a moment ago, those letters were then passed to different churches. Why? Because truth is relevant no matter what context or culture it encounters. And so just as the truth of, of the book that, that Paul wrote to Ephesus was relevant to them and to the surrounding neighbors, it is still relevant to us today because truth transcends context and truth also transcends culture and time. And so the truth that we're going to read today is just as applicable for our life. Now, what's really Really interesting about this specific passage that we're about to read as we're walking through the book of Ephesians is that this is the very first passage that I preached out of when we came and tried out. And so this is perhaps these 10 verses are my favorite in all of scripture. And we're going to be focusing on Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. And here's the big idea of this passage before we even read it. It is this, God has transformed us from dead corpses to living bodies. Therefore, we need to live out good works. Let's read, starting in verse number one, it says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow, that's a lot that we just read. One paragraph, 215 words, and Paul in these 215 words is giving us the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be here thinking to yourself this morning, Austin, I've been saved for a long time. I know the gospel message of Jesus. Why would you preach this again? Shouldn't we go to the quote-unquote deeper things of God? Now, we have to remember the context in which Paul is writing. He's writing not to non-believers, rather he 
he's writing to Christian. And this should show us something from the very beginning. Every now and then, we need to stop and we need to remember where we came from. We need to reminisce on our transformation. We need to be encouraged of where Christ has brought us from. How many of you like to go back and look at your high school senior yearbooks? Anybody? How many of you like to dig out those yearbooks on your spouse and show them to the company when they come over? Like, hey, let me show you what charity looked like in middle school. This is awesome, right? Or you do that to your, you know, you do that to your spouse. You start looking at those pictures. I had, it's fun to reminisce and to remember where we came from. A lot of you had the pop collars over your suit jacket and you had the bell bottoms. Who did that? Be honest. Raise a hand. There's a few honest people in here. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad did it. He had my dad, mom and dad's here. And so I get to pick on my dad. He had the world's worst haircut and he had this Amish beard when we were growing up. And it's fun to dig out those pictures. I was in high school, not high school. I was in college and we had to make this, uh, this PowerPoint. That's how old, I guess that, that kind of dates me right then. We don't use PowerPoint. We had to make this PowerPoint of our life. And so I used for my mom, I used a picture when she was in high school and she dressed up uh, in one of the Kiss characters. Uh, who was it? Peter Chris from Chris. And so she had all this makeup on and everything. It's fun to reminisce, right? We, it's fun to think back and, and to see what happened. And what Paul's trying to get us to do is spiritually to reminisce of who we used to be and who we are today. Paul told the Philippian church that it was not difficult for him to remind them of the good news and that it was for the benefit of the church to remember the gospel message. And it's a benefit for us, particularly going into this Easter season, to remember the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to do in this passage. We need to remember our transformation. We were sick and dead, yet the gospel message was the cure to the curse. There's three things I want to show you from this passage. The first is this. The gospel message teaches us that we have a problem but there is a cure. Verses one through five says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you, we all once lived in its passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Jeremy Batham was a philosopher that lived in the 19th century, and he was a super weird guy who was famous for founding the, the worldview called utilitarianism, which basically was this worldview slash doctrine that said that actions are right if and only if they are useful to the benefit of the majority of the population. You can see how that could get turned sideways very quickly and how that could be a problem. Uh, this doctrine has kind of become famous in some different circles. Uh, it tries to promote happiness and all this. That's not really the point. The point is that he died in 1832, and apparently he was a very wealthy man, and he left a ton of money to the University College of London. And in his will, he said that he would give them all this money, and his only request is that his skeleton be taken, his head mummified, and the head his body would be on display in this college. And so the, it was such a large sum of money, they agreed to it. You can actually go there today, and Batham's body is still on display. The problem is, is they botched the mummification of his head, and so they had to make a wax uh, replica of Mr. Batham's head. And I kid you not.
not, you can go look at it today. If you do not believe me, Google some pictures when this sermon is done and you can see it. It is very creepy. It gives you nightmares. Now, the bizarre behavior led to a formation of a myth that they would roll his corpse into every board meeting. And in every board meeting, the minutes would state, Jeremy Batham present, but not voting. And why? <laughs> If he did vote, that's a, whew, that's a whole other thing. Now, while this is a myth and everything surrounding this story is rather bizarre, it is a representation of who we were before Christ, spiritually speaking. We were dead corpses in the corner who were present, but we weren't voting. We were here spirit, we were here physically, but spiritually we were dead. And Paul's calling the church to recognize the condition that they were before Christ. He's calling them to look and say, I want you to think about who you were. And again, we need to remember he's not writing to a group of cannibals. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying, You're your your construction workers and, and your school teachers and your pastors and your and your lawyers and your doctors and your, your laborers, you're your common people, but you were dead in your trespasses and your sins that you once walked. You were the walking dead, and now sick you were spiritually. This teaches us something very unique that goes against the, the, the grain of the culture. The culture today basically says that we're all basically good. Yes, we're going to do some bad things from time to time, but basically if you get to the core of, human, of humanity, we're all basically and fundamentally good. And what Paul's saying is he wasn't saying you were good or bad. He's, he's not even addressing morality. He's saying you were dead. Culture thinks that religion is about morality, being good versus being bad. But what the Bible teaches us is something completely different. The gospel message is not about being good or bad. It's about being dead or alive. It's about being spiritually well or spiritually sick. And the condition without Christ it has nothing to do with if we do more good works than bad works. We are dead. We are dead. That was the condition that we were left in. Look at the language that Paul uses in these verses. Dead in your sins. What does it mean to be dead in your sins? The sins that Paul is speaking of is not just actions like stealing cars or telling a lie. Rather, he's speaking the state of sin in which all humanity resides in without Christ. The sinful nature is the, de the, the departing of God's holy standards for our lives. Sin is treason against the holiness of God. It's, it's looking our own direction and saying we're going to do our own thing. Death is then paying into our life wages that we cannot escape. Paul goes on to say that we were following the course of this world. We were like cattle driven along towards destruction because of our rebellious lifestyle. We were being led by the enemy himself. He says that the prince of the power of the air is the one driving us along. So we're following the course of this life. And all of this is bad news, but then it gets even worse. Verse 3, it says this, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice that none of us were going to be able to escape this condition on our own. You didn't have to be a mass murderer just by nature, we were sinful. Our nature was flawed. Our nature was broken. We followed the attitudes and the habits and the lifestyle of the culture over and over and over again. The worst advice ever given to humanity is to follow your heart. 
right? Like it makes a great Hallmark movie, perhaps. We can sell a card, but terrible advice to follow the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And if we went around the room, we could all tell stories about how we followed our heart one time and we really regretted it. Come on, somebody. You know what I mean? Like, like how many of you had the old girlfriend or boyfriend? You're like, I followed my heart. It bit me bad. You know what I mean? Still scarred, right? Why? Because we can lie to ourselves very well. Notice it says that we're sons of disobedience. We, we picked up traits. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Speaking of the wrath of God makes us uncomfortable in this culture. We'd rather speak about the compassion of God, the love of God, the grace of God. And we will speak of those things here in a moment because God is graceful. He is merciful. He is loving. However, you can't talk about a merciful God unless he has a reason to be merciful. You can't talk about God's mercy unless he has someone to show mercy to. And we were the ones that were needing God's mercy. Wrath is God's settled stance towards sin. The response from a holy God is wrath towards sin. We get angry when we see others sinning towards other people. It makes us angry when we see people who commit murder, or it makes us angry when we hear about child trafficking. All, those things make us angry, and it should. Why? Because we know it's wrong. And God's disposition towards sin is wrath. The reason why we struggle with this is because thinking of the wrath of God is like thinking of our own wrath. We, we compare God's wrath to how we respond when we get angry. We get emotional, and we lash out. But God doesn't react that way. God's wrath is in justice. It's not fickle. It's not whimsical. God punishes sin because he's holy and he has to. Hebrews 10, 31 shows us the dread of this. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. If we don't understand this depravity, then we can never understand God's mercy. All of this is terrible news, yet... This is where we all once lived. This is the condition we were in. The sickness and the death were our future. However, the, most two, the two most beautiful words, life-changing words of all time, come in verse 4, but God. Two simple words change the entire outcome. Verse 4 through 7 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Think about that. He says, while you were still dead, he still loved you. The great love which he had loved us, according to verse four, when you were rebellious, when you were treasonous. He still loved you. It's hard for us to really understand the depths of which he, the Apostle Paul is speaking here. And I want to be careful with this analogy, but the, the best thing I can come up with is this. How many of you guys remember 9-11? Everybody knows exactly where they were in 9-11. We watched the Twin Towers fall. I want you to imagine standing up on September 12th, looking Osama bin Laden in the eyes and saying, I forgive you. Come be a part of my family. That would be hard for us to wrap our minds around. Why? Because that, that man inflicted such 
pain and suffering on so many thousands of people in our country. And yet we were the treasonous one. And God in love came and rescued us and raised us up. If it wasn't for verse four, but God, this would be the most depressing sermon in history. Some of you might think it still is, but we're going to suffer through it together. You're here now, so I mean, you can leave, but most of us don't want to do that. So we're, gonna, we're in it. But God changes the outcome of this message. If it wasn't for the words, but God, then we're still lost in our sins. We're still broken. We're still without hope. We still don't have any peace. There's no healing. But God changed and brought a plot twist to the history and to the story. God has the power to bring dead things back to life. God has the power to right wrong things. God has the power to satisfy the demands of justice and bring restoration towards his people. The writer has just told us the condition and the character of ourselves. And now he's calling us to look at the character and the nature of God. Look at the character and the nature of God. He is rich in mercy. God's desire is to show mercy towards us. His desire is to show mercy towards our neighbor. He desires to show mercy, not his wrath. He is great in love. God is great and he is love. His love is the creation of, of the cross. His love is the creation of the redemption plan so that you and I could be rescued and redeemed. His grace is in kindness. Not only is God looking to right our wrongs, but he is graceful. He wants opportunity to, to give us a pardon. He's looking to elevate us to son and daughtership, to show us kindness and to bless us in the spiritual blessings. That is who God is. That is his nature. That is his character. Our character was broken, but his character is perfect. To understand the gospel message, you have to understand the nature of God. C.S. Lewis wrote the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and he gave us a picture of who God is. And within this movie and within this book, there's a scene in which Mr. Beavers tells uh, Susan that Aslan, the, the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion, and she is surprised, and she assumed that he was a man. So she tells Mr. Beaver, I, I feel nervous about meeting a lion. She asks him, is Aslan safe? To which he replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king. There's nothing more fearful than the wrath of God, but there's nothing better than the grace of God. God is not safe, but he is good. And that's the beauty of the gospel message laid out in these verses. We were dead, but yet he made us alive in Christ. The union with Christ is what makes us come alive. It's, it's, it's more than just a starting point. It's more than just doing good or doing better. This is the transformation that unites us with Christ, the author of life, who transforms us from dead corpses into living, breathing children. The reason why we can be transformed is because Christ was transformed. He left heaven and came to earth, and he was a man. He emptied himself of his glory. He came and took the form of a servant, and he wrapped himself with flesh, taking on the likeness of man. Christ lived the righteous life that you and I could never live. And then he went and laid his life down on the cross. He satisfied the demands of wrath for ourselves and he rose again. Now the, the phrase and the verse in this passage that's so important to catch 
is with Christ. Let me read it to you again, verses four through seven. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. The details in this passage are really important to understand. Catch this spiritually. When Christ raised from the dead, he made us alive in him. By grace of God, we have been unified with Christ. Through faith, there's a fusion with Christ. Through faith, we were brought into him. The words with Christ and in Christ line the New Testament. And through faith, by grace, you are now in Christ. In verse 6, it says that God raised us with Christ. So in essence, spiritually speaking, all of us were the same as Lazarus. When God stood at the tomb, when Jesus stood at the tomb of his buddy Lazarus and said, come forth, spiritually speaking, when Jesus rose from the dead, you and I rose with him. Spiritually speaking, Christ said, Austin, come forth. Jake, come forth. We were brought up with him in Christ. Paul echoed the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. Let me start reading verse number 9. It says this, For in him the the whole fullness of deity body dwelled, and you have been filled in him, speaking of Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off the flesh, the body of flesh by the circumcision of God, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us of all of our sins and trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to shame, triumphing over them in him. Notice that in Christ, all this works. So when we give our faith to Christ, we make him the Lord and Savior, we are fused and we're in him. He's our covering. We're we're wrapped in his righteousness. And so when God sees us, he sees new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a unifying factor that happens in Christ. This is the gospel message. It's so important to catch this. You're not separated from him. You're now in him. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, you did too, if your faith is in Christ. You're a new creation. Our passage goes on to say that he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. To understand the seated in heavenly places, you have to understand have an understanding behind the flesh. The idea behind the flesh is that it encapsulates sin. Flesh is what we used to live in, but now we're transformed, leaving the life of sin, and we're driven by a renewed spirit that Christ puts inside of us. In heaven, our portion is seated with Christ. In the coming age, there is a consummation of this promise, and we're with him 
That's why Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from our eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is what he has done for us. So the first thing that we see is that the gospel message teaches us we have a problem, but there's a cure. The second thing this passage teaches us is that gospel transformation teaches us that the cure is free. Verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How many of you love gifts? I like getting gifts. Come on, let's be honest. Like, I like, it was my birthday, right? This last week, I got some gifts. You know what was cool about this week? I got four Cracker Barrel cards this week so I can go eat breakfast. You know what I mean? I mean, that's good stuff right there. So, so one person gave me a card that had two Cracker Barrel cards in it. I was like, come on, I can go have breakfast because they had the best pancakes and the syrup, you know what I mean, in the little bottles. And you know you steal some of those and take them home with you, you know, because they're good, right? And so Zach's laughing a little too hard at that. He's in over there lifting those, you know, he rattles when he walks out the door. Then I got a card again this morning, had two more in it. Come on, some double portion blessing, right? I like gifts. I like, I like gifts. We like good gifts, though, right? Back in the day, the youth pastor thing used to be, if you were a youth pastor, somebody come to you and say, hey, I have some stuff I'd like to give to the youth. I got this couch. It's only like 35 years old. You know what I mean? A little duct tape, that spring won't come out anymore. I mean, it is... It was good quality back in the day. That flower print used to look really nice. The sun kind of faded that one, you know. But I want to give this to the youth because the kids deserve the finest, you know. That doesn't really happen anymore, but that's what used to. We don't want bad gifts. We want good gifts. And what this is saying is that everything I just told you from God is a gift. You can't work for it. You can't brag about being a Christian. You can't brag about being saved. You can't brag about the transformation in your own heart because you and I didn't do any of the work. All we did was create the problem. But the free gift is wonderful, and he's given it to us. And there's no strings attached. Faith is the linchpin. It's an, we have to understand the free gift. When we have given our life to Christ and we put our faith in him, he then rushes into us. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with one mouth confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a free gift. And we're united with Christ. You can't work for it. So there was, a, there, was a, there was a sickness. There was a death. But God offered the cure. And it was free through faith. The third thing we see, and I want to close with this. The worship team wants to come back. The gospel of transformation teaches us that the cure allows us to live. Allows us to live. Verse 10 says this. For, you, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I am not someone who understands art. Charity and I went to an art display one time by accident in downtown Tulsa. I got zero of it. 
I mean, it made no sense. I mean, there was alligators hanging from the ceilings and <laughs> these things. I, I mean, I just look at it. If you like art, I apologize. I just don't get it. I mean, I've seen the Mona Lisa. I don't get it. I mean, I just, I don't get it. Uh, I'm not impressed. Now, there is one thing that has impressed me of late, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm not cultured. All right, I apologize. Well, I did watch this Facebook video the other day that was super cool. It was this guy, and it was like this fence, and there was a tree behind it. And he started painting on this fence, and it blended into the natural landscape around it. And there was two or three of him, these that he was doing. I was like, now that I get. That takes, that takes talent. Painting a woman that just sits there looks angry. I mean, I don't know how much talent that takes, but that right there, that was impressive, right? I get that. But here's the thing about artists. Like, they take pride in their work, and they should. And I kid, obviously, a little bit. I can't draw a stick man, so, I mean, I can't do any of that. But artists take pride in his work. And what this verse is telling us is that, for we are his workmanship. Christ has stuck his hand on us and formed us and created us in himself to do something, and that is good works. Christ wants to make a masterpiece out of your life. And that's a, that's a pretty cool trick, quote unquote, to be able to take something that's dead, to make it alive, to lay out a path so that it can do good works. The Apostle Paul was the one that wrote this passage. And when you look at the Apostle Paul's life, he used to persecute and kill Christians. And then one day God spoke to him from heaven, changed his life. And Paul gave the rest of his life to telling others about Christ. That's a masterpiece. That's a masterpiece. And that's what Christ is able to do in every single one of us. The question is, is what good works are you to live out because of what Christ has done in your life? We need to be producing fruit of the Spirit. We need to be acting in compassion towards others. We need to be preaching and sharing our faith. We need to testify about His goodness. We need to be visiting the sick and taking care of those that are around us. We need to live our life of sin behind. We were once in disobedience, and now we're in obedience. This is what we're called to remember, our transformation. As we go into Easter, it's kind of interesting how the book of Ephesians is laid out in this entire sermon series. As we go into Easter next week, everything that we just read happened on Easter Sunday. And the question for us is, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this truth? Some of us, we need to accept this truth. You might be here today and you have never surrendered your life to Christ. For others of us, we need to remember this truth and we need to walk around with praise on our lips. We need to walk around and we need to tell others what Christ has done for us. And we need to invite them so they can hear about the gospel message, so they can experience everything that you and I have experienced in Christ.